Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Labor Day weekend, which means that we'll dip into our archive for one of my favorite conversations of the year. Back in February, on the occasion of a survey of her work then on view at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, I spoke with Betty Saar. Since then, she's turned 90 years old, and the Prada Foundation in Milan has picked up the exhibition and will show it this fall. Sara's last major exhibition in New York was in 1975. Her last major exhibition in Los Angeles was 20 years ago. She's on view in Milan starting on September 15th. Don't ask me to explain that. All I know is that Betty Saar is one of the most important and influential artists of her generation, and spending an hour listening to her was one of the biggest thrills I've had in doing this show. Betty Saar, after the break. I'm thrilled to announce that next month, the Modern Art Notes podcast will be recording its first-ever live audience program in Washington, D.C. Please join me at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden on September 10th at 2 p.m. as I talk with Hamish Fulton. Since 1972, Fulton has only made artworks based on the experience of walks, walks through countryside, cities, wherever. These walks, which expanded in 1994 to include group walks, have informed photography, illustration, wall text, and more. Fulton's work is in the Hirshhorn Collection and is now featured in a major survey at the Tate Britain, Conceptual Art in Britain, 1964 to 1979. Please join Hamish Fulton and me for free at the Hirshhorn on September 10th at 2 p.m. Hope to see you there. An experiential multimedia work by Teji Furuhashi, Lovers, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Take part in an immersive kinetic installation that surrounds you with life-sized images of the artist and other fellow members of the Kyoto-based artist collective Dumb Type, moving in a choreographed sequence that's altered by your presence. Get more information and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today. The Getty's Summer Book Sale is happening now. From a peek into the life of Cezanne through his personal letters, to an examination of L.A.'s modern architecture, to delightful children's books, beautifully illustrated exhibition catalogs, and scholarly art historical publications, there's something for the artist and everyone. Get 50% off selected titles through October 2nd at shop.getty.edu. And we're back. Betty Saar, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start way back when, in the 1950s, you got your degree from UCLA in design and worked as a designer in the early 1950s. In fact, you opened up a business with a, I love this, you opened up a business with a friend named Curtis Tan and you called the business? Brown and Tan. (laughs) (laughs) His name is Tan, my maiden name is Brown. So we figured that was pretty catchy. It's still pretty catchy. 50 years, 60 years later, it's still pretty catchy. So you had an interest in art and in making art all along, but design meant a way to make a living, of course. So what did you take from design that was useful when you stopped making design and started making art? Well, just a basic mental attitude about placement, about color, about pattern, just the basics of design just came in really handy when I switched to to assemblage and collage and installation. It just—it's very natural. It's like I didn't ever have to ask myself, oh, should this go over three inches more or anything. It just was a very natural feeling for me. 
do you still have things you 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 made back for the design world? No, when I when I transferred from this design into fine art, so to speak, just the basics of of elements and concerns that I had learned as a, a design student just fit right in without me even having to think about it. And in fact, sometimes it seems too much that I would just like to be really free with it, but there's a, a certain regimentation that comes into my work that, well, I, it's what I like to have about my work, I'm talking about my current work, that, that it feels right, that everything feels right in its place, and that it was just made that way in spite of all the materials and and other elements that I have put into it. Did you begin to move toward assemblage as a designer, or was that a whole different part of of your life and your your life making things? Well, I went back to uh, to school to California College. Uh, I guess yeah. Well, it was, it's now called a different name to get a master's degree, and I was working with a designer, and then I happened to walk by a printmaking room. When I was a student at UCLA, they did not teach printmaking at that time. So this was a new experience. So I went in there and checked it out. And then the next semester, I started taking printmaking. And that was my segue from from design into the fine arts by becoming a printmaker. And then later, with my prints, I started framing them in objects like windows or making them into boxes. And then that was my entrance into assemblage and collage. But before then, I saw the work of Joseph Cornell, and that's what really pushed me into art making in boxes and windows and just not flat, not two-dimensional, but three-dimensional. I think the earliest piece of yours in the current exhibition is from 1961. It's a serigraph titled Anticipation. We'll have we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. I'm guessing that's you. That's me. Are the flowers in your right hand hiding your baby bump? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's anticipation, and it was like I was pregnant with my, my third child, and by then I was a printmaker, so I think I finished it up just a few days before she was born. So oh, wow. That's important. <laughs> well, I kept working, and, and my instructor said, you must, you can't have your baby in the studio. You have to get out of here, so... I finished my class and finished the baby and the print, so it all worked out fine. So moving moving toward assemblage, which is, of course, what you're best known for and what you helped make famous, last year you did a, a really nice video with the Museum of Contemporary Art. It's you and George Herms in, in the video. We'll have a link to it. And you said you thought of yourself as a hunter-gatherer, which is a great phrase, full of, full of an association. The art historian Jane Carpenter wrote that in the 1960s, you would visit the Watts Towers and pick up bits of things lying around on the ground. Was that the start of hunting and gathering, or were you picking things up even before that? Oh, way before that. Yeah, I was a kid that always liked to go through the trash, especially if you move into a new house, because who knew what kind of treasure there would be there? And always was like pack rack since I was a kid always had a really vivid imagination about seeing things and thinking about things. And I think that was my fascination with the Watts Towers. My maternal, paternal grandmother lived in Watts, California, 
And when we would spend some time, some time in the summer with her, we would walk down to the city and on the just walk down the railroad tracks and pass where Simon Rodea was building the watchtowers. This would be in the 30s. And we're always, always curious about that. And my grandmother said, oh, he's just a guy making something. And then I would beg my father to take us by there so we could see it. And But it wasn't until I was an adult and had a chance to, to go by there that I could really examine what he'd really done. And by that time, of course, he had moved on to other places and other things. And even now when I go there, I look at the wall and maybe there's some broken pottery plates Sometimes it's just the, the wet cement, and he has to put something in the space so he'll take a tool and make an imprint in it. And the one I find the most amusing is like a corn cob. He had a piece of space and with wet cement, so he just put the corn cob in there. And I just love that kind of freedom of like anything can go to make this piece, which developed my attitude about you can make art out of anything. He, of course, was Simon Rodia, who made made Watts Towers. So are there little bits of things you picked up around Watts Towers in, in your own work? Well, there's not very much that you could pick up. And besides, it's, by that time, it was like belong to the Los Angeles uh, Parks and Recreation Department. And so I, there wasn't too much you could – it wasn't anything from his construction that was there, unless maybe I found a, a rusty nail or something like that. But as a kid, and even now, I start picking it up and picking up whatever things I would find. When I travel, I find things. I like to find things, uh, maybe like a package of cigarettes or pieces of paper because I recycle them into collages. But I became a hunter and gatherer a long, long time ago. There's uh, one of your collages called A Version of Survival from 1983. includes a picture of Watts Towers. As, as part of your your piece, how does how does Watts Towers figure in that work? Why why is it important for it to be there? I think this is a piece where I had the title before I made the piece, and then it's made of um, composed of like three lacquer trays or top tops of boxes. The tray is the platform of it, and then there's like a, a pipe, half of a pipe container or some shape. And it has a black baby standing on a, a cabbage thing. And that, was, for me, suggested the piccanini that was found under the cabbage leaf when she's at in Uncle Tom's cabin. After she came from, she said, I was just under, born under a cabbage leaf. So that, see, it's, it's, it's interesting that now that I can put it together and sort of invent my story of what I was doing, but I didn't. Except I was aware of Uncle Tom's cabin and the piccadilly under the, the cabbage leaf. And then the watchtowers was a photograph that I had taken, and I wanted to include that because I think that was important to my development as an artist and as an artist of mixed media. And so those two just came together. And it was about, I guess, my own personal development of of becoming an artist working with sound objects. It's a it's a really great piece. We'll have an image of it on the website. So some sometime I guess in the late 1960s, you started using you started making collages out of both windows and doors, which which has been enormously influential on 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 on, on contemporary art in the years since. Why windows? 
and why doors? And is there a different reason for using windows and doors, or is it kind of all part of one thing? I think I was on vacation somewhere up the coast, and where I was staying with a friend and her family, and wandering around the yard, they had these stacks of windows, maybe two or three windows, and they were so beautiful. I said, oh, it would be fun to frame my prints into a window because it's like a a frame, only it's a different shape, and multiple panes or places to exhibit. So that's how it started, like in 1966, it was, I started doing the, the windows as a way of framing my print. There's a print called House of Tarot, which is about the tarot cards, and they're laid out, and it, and it also suggests like a window. So it seemed like a natural progression to, do, to frame the prints. So I started framing prints and drawings into the windows, and then later putting things on the frames, and then they, they developed into assemblages. And then when did doors come in? Not that many doors. Screen door mostly, many, no. yeah. Um, a long, narrow screen door. I had another door, but it was just too heavy to manage. So, But mostly the windows and then a few narrow doors. And there are a couple, I don't know what to call them. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a piece such as self-window with reflection, which has three window panes. Maybe it's the top of a window. It's kind of hard to tell. But, but you know, your windows are often not just a single pane of glass. They are... No, I prefer the ones with the, with the, with the multiple panes in them because each one is like a, a frame. Yeah, so this is like a, a top part of a, of a vintage window, the part that you lift, slide up, and then there's another part. It's like a two, it's a two-part window. Yeah. Yeah, and so I used it to frame. One is a phrenology chart, and another is a drawing of my face, and then another is like a silhouette of my face with a shade that lifts up. Yeah, this is a really interesting piece. We're talking about self-window with reflection, and we'll have an image of it too. The drawing of you on your right is completely black except for, with, with no tonal difference, except for your eyes and your mouth. Well, I think what it doesn't show in, in the photograph, but it's a painted, my, like my silhouette is painted on a mirror. Yes, it's painted on a mirror. And that's just my silhouette, so the mirror shows through the eyes and, and the mouth. Right. So as you look, as a viewer looks at it from the right place, of course, the viewer's eyes could, could really be where your eyes are. Was that part of the idea? I think so, because it's the pain itself is just about the shape of a head, a depth, of, and I think that's life size in the drawing. Yes. So, what is the relationship in that work of the middle figure, the the drawn, pale beige panel? Yeah, well, it's a, it's an actual drawing, a pencil drawing on paper, so it's much lighter. So there's this there's this very light image in the middle and this very dark image on the right. Is that a reference to your being multiracial or something else entirely? No, it's not that deep. It, it's just a, a, another way of drawing the same thing. Or, one, one, or maybe it's because the pencil drawing is more lifelike and I was really drawing it and the other is like a shadow. So it's like the persona and the shadow. And the dark one is a shadow. At about the same time you made self-window with reflection, you made probably your most famous work, 1969's Black Girl's Window, which has been in MoMA's collection now for for a couple years. So I was asking you about the eyes in self-window with reflection. The eyes in Black Girl's Window are 
Well, what, what, tell me about the eyes in Black Girls Window. <laughs> well, there, it's an eye that you can buy, purchase, and it, it's like a photograph. It's like a, I'm going to not remember the name of it, where you, it, it shows dimension. And so, like, you t- slightly tilt it, and the eye closes, and then the eye opens. And so that's what that is. So it has the eye sort of halfway open when the camera took a photograph of it. But if you look at it and you move around, the eyes sort of blink. Because uh, in, in, in Black Girl's Window, there's one eye that that is very much there. You know, you see an eye. And, and the other eye, I you can't quite make out what it is. What's going on in the other eye there? <laughs> well, I think this is just the way the camera took the picture. Ah. Because when, when, when you move it, or when you move yourself, it, it opens and shuts. And opens and shut, but the camera just took a picture when it was like half open. In some ways, Black Girl's Window is almost kind of a Rosetta Stone of of things you would do over the next few years. Is there a particular story behind when and where and how and why you made this piece? Well, this piece came before Self Window, so I, evidently I might have been doing a a series of of self portraits, but this one is about my life. It's like the bottom part is like I'm standing in front of the window with my palms pressed against the glass and like the wind the curtains of the room behind me. Up above is the the sky chart with the sun in the center. It's like phases of the moon of uh to simula uh, to suggest a passing of time, of months, days, months, years. And on the hands are the astrological signs of the planets and so forth. So it's like I'm standing, I guess, exposing my future, uh, my destiny according to astrology. And, and the panels up above are small panes, and they suggest maybe things in my life. Up above is about how the moon and the stars will tell your destiny by astrology. The couple dancing in the corner to suggest my early family, my, my parents dancing to Valentine, I think, from the 1930s. And then the, on the other side is a phonology chart with all the panels of the hand of telling my destiny and fate by phonology. Below that is, is an eagle with love on a shield. And the center is a... A daguerreotype, A daguerreotype, yeah, of an unknown person who was white. So that symbolizes my mixed heritage. And on the far left looking down at it, is a line holding the sun, and that's to symbolize my astrological sign, which is Leo. It's almost, in some ways, a self-portrait that references your future self as much as your past self, then. Correct. Or your current self. Correct. Which was part of the idea. Yeah. And in the center, I have death. Literally a skeleton. Yeah, you're literally a skeleton, too, because death has sort of changed a lot of, uh, with my family, and how I how I came about, you know, my father died when I was like five or six years old. That is, I guess, I was also putting it together with information that I wasn't quite aware of. Like, so that would be the future. And then, you know, at this point, I can see the significance of that paddle being in the center. The, the, this piece is a 1969 piece, and we were talking, or you were mentioning the, the tarot symbols up at the very top the 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 moon the stars 
And I think the first time you used tarot symbols in your work was the year before, in 1968. And it includes, uh, it's a work called House of Tarot. It has a, a red sun and a yellow moon, two blue stars, all on a blue background. Was your interest in kind of, I think to sort of use your own phrase, kind of hippie religion of Laurel Canyon in the 1960s, is that why you used the tarot imagery or were you interested in them in just because they were graphically gripping? Well, they were graphically gripping. And also I had been as a child sort of interested in palmistry signs from when uh, It used to be a lot of sort of roving gypsies in Southern California. They would come here. They would make furniture and sell long furniture because it was like an outdoor society at that time. Well, all the time, California usually is. But they would have the signs. They would have conventions. And I was just interested in that palmistry sign. And so I would, at that time, during the 60s, I would investigate and try to find out more about palmistry and phonology and astrology. And, of course, that was also part of the hippie culture, which was in the 60s. And But it was all Eurocentric designs. And there were lots of books about how to make gold and all the strange symbols that were out there. And I was just really interested in that. So I did a lot of my printmaking using those symbols. And House of Taro is one of them. But there are many of them that use that. But I sort of adapted the phases of the moon with the sun in it as one of my symbols to show passing of time or about uh, ancient times and current times. But I've used that symbol a lot. But it developed during the 60s as a printmaker. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a great both symbol and just a visual. I mean, it just. I mean, it's such a great way in. It, it, you know, you, you, the, the classic art colors of red, yellow, and blue together. I mean, it works in uh, in all the ways. You mentioned your family and losing your father when you were young. Your mother, I think, was a Christian scientist, right? My mother became a Christian scientist after his death. She was raised. She was raised as Episcopalian, and then when she was married, they belonged to a church called the Independent Church in Los Angeles. But then after his death, she became a Christian scientist. And at that time, I was maybe like, but I started going to Christian science Sunday school maybe like when I was eight or so. The things that I took back from that was about how absolute faith can cure and heal anything. And it was sort of important to me. I mean, I, I can't remember anything about Mary Baker Eddy or any of her teachings, but I know just about the feelings of 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 like having that that faith and uh, and I think that's why later on as as an adult I became interested in unity and Unitarian churches and but that's where it started and also just about I I think maybe later on as an adult I went to one of their practitioners. That may not be the correct word that they're called. It is the correct word. Yeah, the the the, the church members who will pray for you and yes, yeah, yeah, the power of group prayer and so forth. And I still feel that way. I don't like being sick. I like being well, and I just try to do that. I'm more interested in holistic medicine and practices than than anything else. You know, I noticed that a lot has been written about 
tarot and, and mysticism in your work and not very much about whether that Christian science background worked its way into your art? Do you think it did? No, it just well, it worked its way into my life. And, you know, as the artist, then, then maybe maybe so. But I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago about Joseph Cornell, and I found out that he was a practicing Christian science. He was, yeah. That's part of why I asked. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I just didn't, didn't know. I'm glad I read that about him before you asked, because I, <laughs> it sounds like I knew that, but I didn't. But I just attracted to his work and everything. But Then later, my mother, my, my mother later married... Um, a man who was Methodist, and then we went to Methodist Sunday school, and then my friends went to a Baptist church. So then I became—I didn't become any any part of that, but I would go with the people that were there. So I've been like Episcopalian, Christian Science, Baptist, Methodist, and now I call myself a Unitarian. As all American as, as I guess possibly so. get, right? but a kind of freedom <laughs> with, with within myself of. I feel like taking the best, the loving part of each one of those religions to form my own philosophy. Well, well, speaking of your family members, in the late 1970s, you made a series of works on handkerchief named after family members. So, for example, one work is called Aunt Hattie, and that references your maternal great-aunt Hattie Parson Keys, with whom you lived, I think, in Pasadena as a child. Why family members and handkerchiefs? Why did those things go together? Well, my mother's mother died when she was, like, young, very young, like nine years old. So that, that's, like, one of the first things about death. So that, that marked her, you know. She had, like, this, not that she was always sad, but there was this, like, an element of sadness about her. And being her child, I wasn't aware of that, but but that's something that that came out. And in this particular time, my great aunt, who had been like a mother to her, had passed away. She was like 94 years old, and this was like 1974 when she passed. She had a trunk where she came from Kansas City, Missouri, that was filled with old clothes, books, papers, letters, dance cards from when she was a young woman, gloves, and handkerchiefs. And so I, co- I just collected all of that stuff because I, I just felt this is, I don't want to put it in the trash, you know, because I can make art out of it. If you can make art out of it, anything. But then my work turned to like a more feminine approach of using more feminine objects, handkerchiefs, gloves, flowers, cards, and it started with a series of flat works. And at that time, I think part of it was maybe like grieving for her her passing. And that's one of the reasons we have handkerchiefs, to have tears. So that instead of a piece of paper, I used a handkerchief to do a series of portraits of the women in my family. So it starts out with my, my mother's mother, my mother's grandmother, my Aunt Hattie, my mother, and myself. And one of the pictures in this series is called The Lost, and it shows a photograph of myself and my father, and it's torn in half. So it's about my grief about his passing. There's a large leaf in the middle of The Lost? 
What is the and there's a butterfly on the leaf. What is the leaf? Uh, the leaf is I suppose about each one of them have a leaf in it. It's about nature, about something that's growing, about life, and the butterfly is the symbol, the metamorphosis of the butterfly about life and death, and the, the butterfly flying away, like life flying away. But each one of them has something that's maybe, like the one of my paternal grandmother has a photograph of like members of her church. She was Baptist, and it was her picture with that. Uh, the one of my mother, I have one of my mother as a child, and then I also have one of myself as maybe like a, a four-year-old in a little wedding dress. Uh, that one is called Rainbow Babe in the Woods. I was going to ask about that one. So if if all of the handkerchief pieces are references to people in your family, Rainbow Babe in the Woods is a little bit different because um, it, it comes a couple years later, 1979, and and it's you. So why 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 two years later is there a handkerchief with with you on it? Well, that was part of part of the the series about the women in my life, and I counted myself as part of that. And then I. I like that photograph, and it's also about, you see it has funny little things wiggling around it. I was also interested in making a symbol to suggest energy. So it really started another phase of handkerchiefs, where I use that to, they're like salmon from fake flowers, but it, but it, uh, and then other curved things. But if you've ever seen a Karelian photograph, to see the energy coming out of, I have one of, of my thumb, and has all these colors and moving things that come out from what to symbolize image energy. So I was very interested in making a series of works that symbolize energy. And since I'm alive, it's about the energy of life. They're 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 really great pieces. We'll have images of of those on the website as well. My guest is Betty Sar. We'll be right back after a break. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. Support for The Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting three exhibitions that reframe the objects and environments of everyday life, July 29th through October 15th, 2016. Exquisite Every Day showcases 18th century European works of decorative art from the J. Paul Getty Museum that highlight the period's achievements in domestic design. The Ordinary Must Not Be Dull explores how Klaas Oldenburg's soft sculptures playfully alter the material, form, and scale of commonplace items, overturning sculptural conventions. Architecture Collective Raumleber Berlin's commission 4562 Enright Avenue disassembles a structurally unsound St. Louis house, giving its salvaged elements new life inside the Pulitzer as an installation that explores the history, present, and future of urban dwellings. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, 
Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And now back to my conversation with Betty Sarr. Turning back the clock a little bit. So a few minutes ago, we were talking about Black Girl's Window, which came in 1969. And in 1970, you uh, made a trip to Chicago where you saw, I guess, maybe the biggest exposure you had to that point to African art. What, what did that trip and that experience of African art change for you, if that's the right word? Well, at that time, I um, was a member, as many artists were in Southern California, Los Angeles, of the National Art Conference, and it was a group that came out of Chicago, and they had a convention, and some of the artists from Los Angeles went to that. My friend David Hammonds and I, we went on the same plane. He was originally from Chicago, so he sort of knew the time. And then doing one of the pauses when we didn't have a talk or anything to go to, David and I went to the Field Museum, which has since become my favorite museum. And at that time, the basement was just filled with non-European art because it was oceanic art, it was Asian art, it was African art, it was art from New Zealand, from everywhere. So we were just in the wonderland, and it was at the very basement, and lots of things were not really as as well displayed as other things were, and it was just sort of like this, it was so much power to go in there. We were just like holding each other's hands, and whoa, what is this? We've never seen anything like this. All together, and not carelessly displayed, but it wasn't as manicured as the field museum is now. And so we would just keep wandering from thing to thing, just experiencing the materials, the use of feathers, of bones, all these things that we considered magical because it was something that we had never experienced before. I had been to the African art exhibit at the Los Angeles County Museum uh, on school school tours, but nothing like this, where you're just totally surrounded by all this stuff that was made from the power of people trying to express the magic in their life. I guess that's one way of putting it. Like later on, I found out that much ancient oceanic art, uh, the binder was blood, that one, one piece that we were really attracted to was a shirt, a simple made shirt, like a piece of fabric folded over. But sewn to that shirt were little balls of hair. So the chief wore that shirt, and everyone in his tribe had given a piece of hair and it was sewn to it. So he was, like, constantly in touch with his people, and we were both really affected by that. For me, it was like just something about the power of, of a shirt and the beauty of it. And for David, it was the use of hair. And at that time, David Hammonds was uh, renting a studio over a barber shop, and he started making his hair pieces. He would just go down to the gar- barber shop and sweep up all this hair and start making these hair pieces. And for me, 
I just started thinking about what kinds of materials get together to express that kind of energy, to express that kind of power. So that was a very important trip for us, for both of us. And that was, I guess, 1970. So I had a couple questions I wanted to ask about that experience. And one of them is, you know, you were, by this point in 1970, of course, already making art out of found objects in Los Angeles. On that trip, did you see that African art, going back, you know, many hundreds of years, for that matter, had been also using found objects? Had had you thought of that before the 1970 trip, or was that was seeing that work at the Field Museum, uh, you know, a, a, a connective moment that you hadn't thought of before that? Well, it was the kind of material because before in '67 I'd seen the show of Joseph Cornell in Pasadena, the California, which was his first California exhibition, right. and that was a really the Pasadena beautiful, Art Museum. Yeah, it was really beautiful. So I could I knew that, but it was all Eurocentric. You know, little boxes, little photographs, little pictures. He did a whole series on birds and owls and things like that. And I, and that was the first thing. Oh my God, you can put these things in a box and it can be art. But then when I saw the film museum, then the idea of the power of those objects—that each one of those objects was some something different that was something really important to somebody's life, like the claw of a of a lion that was killed or fur of something. They were mostly organic because those are the things that survived. But also, I found it interesting that when Westerners came into Africa, like maybe they would have a shell or the casing from a rifle, and that was certainly powerful, and if it was killing people there. And also sunglasses or glass eyeglasses, things that were alien to the organic materials that they used. So that that impressed me, too, about how something from the outside uh, that expressed power combined with organic materials would make this object that had such a strong feeling that, that affected David and I. You know, this, so this was 1970, and, and this is kind of the beginning of what would later be called the Black Power Movement and the beginning of American blacks feeling a renewed kinship and connection with the continent of Africa. Right. I, and I think before then, we didn't even think about it, you know, but during that, during the black arts movement, there were lots of references to Africa, but here we were in this basement. We we're like right in the source of where much of that power had come from, because it used to be that Africa was sort of a, an embarrassment to to black people, you know, it's like, you know, here we are in the United States, we're freed slaves, and we would like to move on, but then for us, that just took us right back there, and I think for many people, they became interested in, in African art, that it was, it had, it had a contribution to make to our lives, and to, and to our country, even. Did you become more interested in Africa as a result of what you saw at the Field Museum, whether it was the continent or the art of the continent? Yes, and that and that's one of the reasons that I was interested in going to Haiti. Which you didn't in 1974. Which, because that, not that it's Africa, but it is a, a country of black people. And also, the uh, it's, it's across from, from the magic and mysticism that's from Africa 
Then it goes to the islands, and Haiti was one of those islands, to the southern part of the United States, to Louisiana. And I was interested in that that progress and also in what materials they used. And also African art, not African art, but Haitian art was very popular. You know, how how they, they expressed their feelings about the power of certain materials and their culture and their rituals. So that's when I went to to Haiti. You know, another element of the kind of Pan-Africa movement and the Black Power movement in the United States was a different relationship to, to violence and power. And in the 1970s, a lot of your figures, especially female figures, begin to hold guns or grenades. Are those two things tied, related to each other? Well, it was the first piece that I had made of Liberation of Aunt Jemima, because I had found this little placket at a flea market, and it was like a mammy, and for her apron, it was a notepad, and she had a broom handle, a broom handle with a pencil. And around that time, you know, inside it, Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered, was assassinated, and I just felt so enraged by that, and yet so helpless. And the television was filled with people reacting to that event and how they were treated with hoses and being attacked by dogs and all of that counter-violence that went on. But uh, here I was, a mom with three young kids. I couldn't participate in, in any of that. But at the same time, I felt really compelled to do something about it. And when I found this placket of a of a mammy, I said, I'm going to make this into a piece of art. I was invited to participate in a show called The Rainbow Sign, which was a community house in Oakland. And this was a time when when the Panthers were forming and having their scene. And the curator suggested that we make a piece of art about our hero, because this is a time when black was beautiful and we were all feeling that, of relating and being proud that we were of African descent. So I used this piece and I made the Aunt Jemima. I changed her from a victim to a warrior. And the way I symbolized being a warrior was replacing the pencil handle with a rifle. And then the other hand is a hand grenade. So that's how I suggested that that Aunt Jemima change from being a servant, a victim, and become a warrior for her freedom, for freedom of the black people. It doesn't mean that I'm a person that really believes in guns, but a gun really denotes that. It denotes a, a, a per, the person with the gun has the power. And, you know, the guns and often the hand grenades stay in your work for another 25 years or 20 years. And even now, even now, with last year with all the the young black men, other men being shot down, murdered down, you know, I said, it's not over. It's not over yet. And I did a series using scales talking about the weight of the persistence of racism that it's still here. It really hasn't changed since those first pieces that I did in in the 70s. 
I want to I want to get to those works with scales and cages in a little bit because well because they're really interesting. But before we we totally lose the thread of being in the Field Museum in 1970, <laughs> you mentioned you were there with David Hammonds, which is a a, a well known story. And we we were talking about Black Girl's Window earlier and how you know your two those two black palms are pushed up against the window, which is a motif that is in your work a lot in the, in, in the 60s. Was your use of windows and doors and palms, hands pressed up against them, something that you and David Hammonds talked about or that you remember talking about? Well, he did a door called Black Boy's Window. He did at the California African American Museum now. And, now, we, don't, we didn't talk about it. I mean, a lot of people talk about the art that I did, but we saw each other's work, you know, and, and I... And I feel, and I know at least for me, that that our feelings about our work changed at at the at our visit of the Field Museum. Although that was the year after. I mean, so his Black Boy's Window is is 1969, as is as is your Black Girl's Window. Yeah, but we we were unaware of that that we had both ah, done. Really? <laughs> Do you remember how how you found out? Well, he told me. He said, "I have a Black Boy's." Was not a window because it was a door. I think it was a big piece, but it had, the top part of it was a window. Yeah, the, the, one of those is, for example, the door uh, admissions office from 1969, still in Los Angeles at the California African American Museum, and then that gave way to his body print. So you you don't remember discussing that you both kind of came upon this interest in this idea at the same time, or maybe where the idea came from? No, I'm not much of a talker about my work except for things like this. But I mean, I mean with artists, you know, they say, oh, how's your work? I say, oh, it's good. So did you and, and David Hammonds and, you know, I don't know whom else, visit each other's studios regularly? And... No, not particularly. But because shortly after that time, I think he moved back to New York. I can't remember the date that he moved. But, you know, because Los Angeles is so spread out, you know, it's just... It's hard to make. I think male artists are more into that of getting together and talking and working together because, like John Otterbridge and John Whittle, who was also passed, there was a group of them. They would get together. They would make art together. They would find materials together. But we all had this this leaning towards accumulative art, making art out of found objects. You mentioned Haiti earlier and, and, and going to Haiti in 1974. I think it was with money, in part, with money you, you earned from a national endowment That's for the right. arts grant. Yes. What did you get out of going to Haiti? At that time, it you know, it's always been a, a, a country that's had a political unrest. But at that time, there were many, many people becoming artists. So I went to art galleries there. I met a few of the artists in their studios and so forth. And I went to the graveyard to see what was there, because that's in some of their paintings. I went to a voodoo ceremony to see what was in that. But, of course, that was like a commercial one. I made many friends there that, that I have now that live in New York who had also gone there, because it was a very interesting country. And now it's still interesting, and now their art artists are very different, because Maybe like three years ago, they had a show of of the art currently made in Haiti, and it was using parts of the victims who, of the the earthquake and a lot of rubbish, a lot of found objects there. 
country was sort of flattened. But I've always been interested in that, in, in the other, in how other people express their feelings about their life, about their politics as artists, and how it has a different, it has more like a healing thing of a way of expressing what they're really about than just making a painting to put in a gallery or a museum. Are there any of your works in particular that you think owe owe a big debt to your experience in Haiti? You've been a couple times, of course, to Haiti. I think after I one of the the handkerchief series, I did a lot of pieces of uh, pieces meaning art using the handkerchief format, and I have one that has that shirt I was telling you about with all the bits of hair, and I had have others about different alternative ways of religion and different cultures. Western, Mudra, yeah, Dervish. Yeah, non-European countries like of Asia. I have one called Mudra. It's in the current show at Scottsdale. So it did have a have a, a, an impact on my work. But I'm the kind of person that it, that the brain and the spirit kind of absorbs all this thing and then I'm doing something and it comes out and I say, oh, yeah. That might have been like when I was in Haiti or when I was at the Field Museum or something. Let's go back to, to kind of the, the Aunt Jemima years and period, if you will. You told Jane Carpenter that you started collecting images that were racist or could be read as derogatory toward blacks in the mid to late 1960s. And I'm not sure a lot of those found their way into your work for a number of years. Do you remember why you started collecting those images? Well, I was, I was just looking for things, looking for materials, and then I would find these really insulting kind of images about women and children and men. And so, you know, at that time, you could buy paper goods for maybe 50 cents to a dollar or something. Now it's all very collectible and harder to find. So I would just collect them just because they were, they were interesting, and also photographs, too, of black people. And then later on, I used to, I started to use them in my work. When I started to do the, the liberation of Aunt Jemima, then then the move from Aunt Jemima to children to to men, and you know I have a really good collection now of those images. But it was just because it was something I hadn't really seen a lot of, and I wanted to like just collect them, and I did. So you held on to some of these, you know, offensive images and objects for years before you used them. Yes. Yes, I did. In fact, after I'd seen the Joseph Cornell show, I think I collected things for about three years before I started putting them into something. I've always been a collector or a junkie, just everything that seemed interesting. And my nice, clean studio was now just full of all that stuff. And I start collecting things that I will use in a series maybe like two or three years ahead of me. So that was kind of normal to hold on to things for yeah, a couple of years yeah. before you would decide what to uh-huh. do with them. Ah, ah. You know, we were talking about your experience up in Oakland and the rise of the Panthers, the Black Panthers up up especially in, in the Oakland area in the early 1970s. Was that pretty much the catalyzing moment at which you decided to start using that racist material, or were there other, I don't know, events, if that's the right word, that got you thinking about finally using all that racist and derogatory stuff you yeah. accumulated? Oh, that was that was my first piece that I did using those objects. It was, you know, that little packet that I had found. And also, 
it, I was really hesitant about putting it out out there because I just felt that it might be offensive. But it wasn't. It was really accepted because it was like the victim being transformed into a warrior. And so then I kind of, and I still do that. I do it with some of the scales, some of the cages. It works its way in, but the materials have changed. I guess I really can't. As long as there's racism, I guess I'll keep on doing it. Well, you also, in the 1970s, maybe a little later in the 1970s, began making work that engaged with stereotypes. And and I guess I mean more specifically, you started using objects that referred to those stereotypes, such as like like a watermelon and Sambo's banjo, for example. Was, Was there a leap between racist imagery and things that you then use to refer to stereotypes? I mean, for example, on, on, on its own, by itself, sitting on a table, a picture of a watermelon isn't offensive, but used in the way you used it, it clearly referenced the stereotype of, of you know, a, a watermelon eating lazy black person. Was there a jump in your thought process or studio practice that got you from objects that were explicitly racist to constructing stereotypes from objects that you found? Well, I started to use the objects in a code way, like like the watermelon to symbolize like black people loving watermelon, and then maybe a blackbird to symbolize Jim Crow, an image of a slave ship to to symbolize Africa were shipped to this country on a ship that had them stored as objects in the hole. A picture of a lynching. Lots of pictures of lynching and violent death in your work in the 70s and 80s. Yes, yes, yes. And with Sambo's banjo, which is an old vintage banjo case, handmade banjo case, it has uh, the gun at the top, and it has and it, the gun crosses a figure, an image of a man playing the banjo, so it makes an X. And I have a black skeleton with a, a rope hanging around his neck. And on the door of that little compartment is a lynching. And then I have a man dangling. And it was like, for me, it's like lynching symbolized entertainment. Then I think in that picture of it, there are people all standing around watching this man being lynched. And I just found that so horrific that a lynching would be an entertainment aspect. So I've used that symbol a lot. And now I use the scale. I use the scale to to symbolize the weight of racism combined with other objects like that. But I think the Sambo's banjo is the one that, that is really graphic with it. There's another one, Let Me Entertain You. There was another one. It's a banjo player in one, in one window, a banjo player over a lynching of two men, and on the other side is a militant, you know, with a gun. So a number of these, basically everything you just described stays in your work for a pretty long time, I mean, 15 or, or 20 years. In In that time, you know, in the 70s or the 80s, were there ever specific events that you felt the need to respond to in your work? So, for example, you know, in 1980, when Reagan announces his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, did that, you know, were there things like that that you thought maybe you wanted to make a, a piece about or that you wanted to 
address? No, but the, the pieces, the first, the piece of Aunt, of Aunt Jemima, the version of Aunt Jemima, really started with the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. That was the first event that I really had that anger, that rage, to start producing pieces using the sort of negative aspect of, of African-American history. The next one was just within the last three or four years when there seemed to be like every month a young black person was murdered. And it was like, it's still happening. And then then I started using the scales of that. But in between, I did have a period where I didn't like the, the idea of anger creating my work. And there were lots of really beautiful things about black people that I wanted to use. So I started using the vintage pieces. I think it might have even started with the handkerchief collages of using the portrait of of my black my family on a handkerchief. And then I used it on a collage or a box. And and then I moved from pieces of paper to uh, once I got my studio built and I had places to, to work on other, other works. And I've used windows. I've used boxes. I've used handkerchiefs. And then I started thinking about the labor of slaves and black people. And I used washboards. And then I so used... Those are great pieces in the late 1990s, yeah. A whole series on that, and then trays to symbolize service. How uh, slavery was still over, but black people were still used in the in the kitchen as cooking. And you often in those works, or at the same time as you made those works, used photographs of young black men in service uniforms. Yes, yes. Well, that was a one really wonderful photograph. World War One. That was a really good. And I think on the back of that that piece, that sculpture, is the slave ship. And I think it's like crossing or something like that. Crossings from 2005. That's one of my favorite of the of the recent pieces. While we're on crossings, crossings also includes an American flag on on one side. I, I guess why that American flag and. Could you talk a little bit about putting the young man in in his army uniform, I I think it's an army uniform, on one side and the slave ship on the back? Well, that's because, uh, like the title is Crossings. Crossing, his ancestors crossed as slaves, and he crosses back to Europe to fight for his country that made him a slave. That's why it's called Crossings. And it's also because the tattered American flag, like been in battle and so forth. Yeah, that's one of my favorites too. It's a wonderful photograph. And and also the, I mean, that, yes, absolutely. And of course, the other key thing with that work is the shape of the object, if you will. It was a strange object that I that I found. I didn't know what it was, but it's like a tombstone. It is exactly like a tombstone. So it's like a memorial piece for all the unknown black soldiers that that died overseas. You know, we've mentioned the scales pieces, which are some of your most recent works, a couple times. And starting five or six years ago, you also made a lot of works in using cages. And so it over over the course of a five or six year period, I guess it's easy for, for me to read those as works that are about incarceration and injustice, especially of, of young black men. Are, are those groups of works happening over, you know, the course of almost a decade now, kind of two halves of a whole about about those two things happening in America? That, it's about that because I did maybe like, I can't remember how many that I've done, but at least like 
10 or 15 of those cages. It took a long time to to, ca- to collect them. In fact, I just bought two cages yesterday because I can't resist. <laughs> but it's also about other things that hold us captive, like jealousy. Like one piece is called vanity, about ideas of things that hold us captive as well as being a captive as a slave. Think notions, ideas, prejudice that enslave us as people, as humans. So that it 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 it, it is expanded more than just slaves being in a cage. Does it also address the massive incarceration rate of black men in America now? It was yes, yes. I think there's one where they're all a. It's, it's, there were little wooden toys that, that they're on a stick and you jiggle it and they're like a dancing darky. And they're all in tuxedos, so that's in one of the cages. I think that one has keys all on the outside of it. None of them have birds in them. They're not about birds, but it's about... No, they're definitely... Some of them look like bird cages, but they, they do not feel for a second like they are about birds. There, there are two more pieces I'd like to ask about before we're done. One of them is is back from earlier in your career but uh was just recently acquired by the Museum of Contemporary Art in LA. Oh, briefly. Yeah. You know, I kind I, I could you talk a little bit about the about out of what that piece came? I mean, it's a piece that references your your own mixed race heritage. But is there any particular reason why in 1972 of all times you were you were thinking about that and wanting to make a work about your own background like that? That piece was also after being at the Field Museum. Oh, of course. Yes, that piece is after about the, after being with the Field Museum. So that, and also, let's see, when did I go to Haiti? 74. So that was, a, you went to Haiti after you made Grigri. Yes. But but about my my curiosity about that kind of thing, because I'd been thinking about Haiti before I went there, but but it really came from the Field Museum and and finding all sorts of objects from places like that. Is that hair at the bottom of that piece that's hanging from the bottom of Grigri? Oh, no. It was like sheep's hair, you know, that just hangs down that because, but that definitely came from inspiration at the, uh, at the Field Museum or or, or maybe hair from a lion or hair from something else on there. But the the basis of that piece is an old wooden base that held a sewing machine. And then it was was like a little altar or something. So I had the black doll in there with all the magic charms on her. The little door that comes open, it has like snake skin and a little chameleon that I'd found. But when the door comes off, it has little wooden containers that hold organic things like sand and grass and seeds and other organic materials, like components of something to create magic. And gris, of course, it's French for gray, not white magic, not black magic, but magic in between, gris, gris. And at the bottom of the work, there is, you mentioned snake skin and what looks like an animal being threatened by the snake? No, it's a it's a little community. They're just like they suggest like what's holding behind it, like organic materials that could be used in, in creating a potion or casting a spell. 
two other things in that piece. One, is that a broken mirror above the figure? Yeah, head? it's a little round mirror in a case that's cracked, that's broken, which gives you a lopsided view of what looks into it. So are you, in that in that piece, the, the, the textile in the back of the piece is a star field. There is a, a cutout piece of cardboard or wood that is in the shape of a crescent moon. Are you kind of recreating your your Terra world? Well, yeah, like the, the, they will all symbolize the universe and how important the moon is to uh, phases of the moon, the passing of time, but also in when certain events happen, whether it's the full moon or the new moon. And then I think there's one that's a little, it looks yellow in there. It's a little um, resin sun that my daughter Allison, who turned out to be an artist, is uh, had made. And then there's maybe a globe in there. I can't always decipher that. Yeah. So the idea was to kind of remake those tarot things only using your materials rather than using actual tarot cards or actual yeah, material from right. tarot material. You know, we, we, we talked a few moments ago about your interest in, in women and working and how you made pieces on washerboards for 15 or 16 years, really. And so maybe the last specific piece I wanted to ask about is a piece that is still that is on view in, in downtown Los Angeles and has been for a long time. And I guess maybe the way into that is to ask you, who was Biddy Mason? Biddy Mason was a slave who came out from Texas. And supposedly when she came to the United States, she was supposed to be free. And finally she had to buy her freedom. She lived right down in the central part of of Los Angeles, Fifth and Main, I think. And she had she'd built a a church, I think the AME church, black church. And the artist Sheila DeBrettville and I were were selected to do a public art piece that's right in the little plaza there where her home was. And when they were excavating that and digging around, they found like a little bottle, so that I used that bottle as part of the the installation that I did there. Biddy Mason was this slave who who moved to Los Angeles and once she got her freedom, and even before then, she still was very helpful to other blacks that lived here. The piece is called The House of the Helping Hand or The House of the Open Hand. She founded a church, and her home was a place to help slaves or newly freed slaves. And she owned a piece of very valuable property. I think maybe even even her heirs opened a hardware store or something. But on that place, it became the parking lot for the Walter, uh, not Walter, but Ronald Reagan building, which is across the street. And they wanted, like in Los Angeles, there's a certain percentage of funding for the construction that goes to public art. And Sheila DeBretville did a, a wall about Eddie Mason's journey as a slave. And I did a little um, installation. It's right by the elevator. That shows a photograph of her on her porch in her home. And then on the other side, it's like the outside of that home with the window as an installation. And looking in the window, you see curtains, you see a picture of her, and you see a bottle that was excavated from the property when they were constructing it. So it's just an homage to Biddy Mason, who was an early, early black settler of Los Angeles. 
So it's a piece that y'all made in, in 1989, and as, as you mentioned, it includes a window, which we talked about at, at the beginning of the show. Was it interesting to you or important to you that after all of those years of using windows taken out of the context of buildings, that to, to make a window that was directly related to a building, <laughs> to, yeah, just, to use a window totally in a way that it was intended? It's a, so, totally natural because I wanted to do something that related to the work that I was doing. I just didn't want to make a public art piece, and that's why I wanted to make it uh, an assemblage window that told the story about the woman that had lived on that property many, many years ago. I think also that probably most people today, including most Angelinos today, don't know that there were slaves in Southern California and that Southern California, at least in the state of California, was the part of California that was most Southern and most secessionist in the years, you know, in the late 1850s and, and before the Civil War, that that the home of Southern sympathizing in the West was Los Angeles. Yeah, it had... It had its trials. I mean, there were even lynchings here. But then it was also like the, the the influence from Mexico, too. That's what really makes it unique, that it was part of Spain as well as part of the the things that the feelings and movements that came out from the South. Yeah. But the wall that Sheila de Bretfield designed has that information. It has dates. It has images and things. So that tells the history. And mine is just like a little slice of life of when she lived in a particular house and a window to that house. With with references to both Biddy Mason and for people who, who know your work, references to, to your work going back 30 years. Yes. So, well, Betty Saar, it has been a thrill and a pleasure and a thrill. And thank you so much for talking with me. Well, it's been nice talking to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.